Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The popular Irish tenor Emmett Cahill has an active musical life as a member of the ensemble Celtic Thunder, as well as a blossoming solo career. Monday evening, he'll perform in a Christmas concert at Symphony Hall. And later this hour, Emmett Cahill will talk with us about that benefit performance and the irresistible appeal of Irish music. First, what does food insecurity look like in Atlanta? According to the Atlanta Food Bank, One in six children in Georgia suffers from food insecurity, and that rate is pre-COVID. To combat this issue, Center Park Credit Union partnered with the One Love Learning Foundation to create a community garden. Jackson Park Farm, located on the rooftop of Maynard Jackson High School, provides fresh produce to those in need in our community, as well as to Gun Show, the award-winning restaurant in Glenwood Park. Former Top Chef contestant Kevin Gillespie is the owner of Gun Show. Earlier this fall, I sat down with him right outside Jackson Park Farm to hear more about these valiant efforts to teach the students about gardening. Kevin, would you tell us how you and your team at Gun Show became involved with the Jackson Park Farm? Absolutely. So it's interesting. Some folks realize, but maybe people don't, that Gun Show is you know, maybe a hundred yards from the school. We can see the school from our front door. And for years, we wanted to figure out a way that we could be more actively participating with the school itself. And so somebody one day mentioned, hey, you know, they have a garden on the rooftop, which I didn't actually realize there was a rooftop, but, um, or at least not a green one. And so I walked over here and I saw the space, but really no one had done anything with it for quite some time. And so we thought, yeah, that would be a really great way, but we, we weren't really sure how to kick it off. Well. Fast forward several years later, frankly, and one of the kind of pieces of, you know, a lot of terrible things happened obviously during COVID, but 
I, as the sort of eternal optimist, like to see the things that were positive. And one of the positive things that came out of it was more conversation about how we could support local food infrastructure. And so the conversation of this garden started again. And then we had an opportunity to partner with people like Center Park Credit Union and the One Love Learning Foundation and Second Helpings Atlanta. So a lot of very like-minded organizations came together and said we could all play a part in this. We made the commitment to support the garden by literally purchasing everything that it produces. And that's how it, that's how it got started. And so out of really out of nowhere, it's like we willed it into existence and it's been an amazing experience ever since then. And you purchase everything they produce. Does that include some fruits and vegetables that might have a few imperfections? <laughs> it absolutely does. So we, we made the commitment that as long as the students were willing to put in the work to grow the things, we were willing to put in the effort to purchase them. We were hoping, I was very much hoping, this is largely on my side I suppose, to use this as an opportunity to teach younger people about the opportunities that come along with that sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Go out and create something and then take it to the market and, and find a way to um, improve your situation. You know, we wanted to show them that there was opportunity to, it's not about gardening or about farming, it's about taking an idea and then bringing it to life. And so for me, making that commitment so that they would have the courage to get out here and do the work was important. And so, yes, we will take things, including something maybe historically that we would have turned away uh, because we want them to feel energized by this. We want, the, we want the kids, we want everybody who's involved, not just kids, frankly, to see this as an opportunity to do something special and to work in partnership with an organization who believes in what they're doing. How does the process work from farm to kitchen right, at Gun Show? It's funny. Of all the things we thought about, I think we neglected thinking about that when we first began. It was kind of just assumed it would happen. But in the very early days, things would come out of the ground and we'd all go, so what do we do now? Um, <laughs> and we realized that, well, we were missing this one piece here. And so what we decided made sense is that since we buy almost entirely from local farms at Gun Show anyhow, we could supply what we'll call market information. We could say, look, strawberries are selling for about this much money or leafy greens. And so the students would be armed with that information. We would weigh their produce. We would, you know, we would come up with a transaction. We'd write them a check and then they would have to bring it back. But it, it even came down to like, how do we get it there? And so for the most part, they're carrying it across the street. And so we get, you know, they come in with the armfuls or binfuls of produce. And then my team at Gun Show sits there and talks to them about it. And, you know, we come up with a plan. And, and now we've gotten to the point even where the communication is more where we know in advance what they think will be coming out of the ground. And so we're building that reputation or that relationship rather much the same as we've had with many of our other farms. And we're treating this just like we would one of our other suppliers, you know, where we're relying on each other to make this thing work. Kevin, what do you look for when selecting produce for your restaurant? Well, it's, it's interesting. So when we choose the produce that we work with, more often than not, what we're trying to find are heirloom vegetables, things that are unique, less commoditized vegetables. So we want to see things in a form that perhaps predates a lot of our sort of mass growing. And so we're encouraging these guys to plant varieties that maybe you haven't seen on the shelves of a grocery store in a very, very long time. It's just more interesting for us to work with. We also are hoping to, one of the benefits to working directly with the farm is being able to dictate 
harvest time and say, well, we find that for us, this vegetable is best when it's harvested at this size. And that isn't something that you get, traditionally speaking, because, you know, romaine goes to the store at this size all the time because, well, maybe we want it a little bit differently. And so for us, our biggest thing that kind of moves the needle is the ability for us to have a bit of that personalized touch based on what it is specifically that we are using it for. And so there are times we want it different than, than other times. I imagine you have inspired and really energized a number of the students here at Maynard Jackson High. Have you thought about possible internships for them? Have any of them asked? Well, interestingly enough, we actually have discussed this internship program, but slightly in connection with something different that we do. We, we operate a foundation called the Defend Southern Food Foundation that actually began during COVID. We were approached by the school system at large, the Atlanta public school system, and said, we have a lot of families who are struggling. They can't put food on the table right now. You know, they're out of work or circumstances are, are such that they really can't. We had a tremendous amount of labor. We had a lot of folks who could work and we had access to a lot of food and we knew of a lot of farms that didn't have a place to sell their food. And so we in very short order put together a program where we have been providing five dinners a week to these families for I guess about a year and a half now. And we haven't really told anybody about this. We've just been doing it quietly out of our restaurants, but it's growing now and we're hoping to continue to grow it further. And so we're finally at the point now where we are, A, gonna have to talk about it because we need to raise $150,000 to get us to the end of this year. We've put in about a half a million ourselves and then some other organizations have supplied us with, with financing. But the answer to your question is, where we have seen an opportunity for internship is that we think not only would it be valuable for these folks to work in the garden, but we think it would also be valuable for them to see what it takes to kind of feed a family. Maybe not a restaurant. A restaurant is a whole different sort of unique world, but the program where we feed families I think could have a lot of connection for these folks because it's their neighbors that we're feeding. And so seeing how to transform raw products, whether that be meat or veg or fish or any number of things, into a meal that's not only nutritious, but is something that people will enjoy because our goal wasn't just to fill people's stomachs, it was to inspire hope was to give them a, a feeling that their neighbors did care about their circumstances and wanted to help. And so um, we're opening that program up basically for when the kids get out of school this time. So we realized pretty quickly that the internships work much better when kids aren't in school. And so we're looking at winter internships and then big ones over the summer as well. Oh, that is wonderful. So you are providing this marvelous experience making students aware of growing food and then through the programs with your foundation addressing food insecurity. Right. Have any of the students asked you about careers in the culinary world well, and what, what would you <laughs> advise them? Interestingly enough, we have actually had a pretty good track record with students coming to work with us and understanding kind of what goes into a restaurant. I think we only have one of maybe the couple dozen that has actually chosen to do it in long term as a career, but I think many of them recognize that A, it's an opportunity, especially when you're young, it can provide a really great job for when you are continuing your education or when you're 
kind of still trying to figure out exactly what you want to do. We get a lot of questions about should I do this? Should I be a chef? Should I become a chef? And I always tell them the exact same thing, which is if, it, if being a chef is the only thing that you can think of that would make you happy, then we want you to become a chef. We need people like that. If on the other hand, you're like, it's either chef or any of the other ors are probably a smarter career choice <laughs> for you. It's a very demanding job and it's one that truly you can only be successful at if you really make that full commitment. Now recently with this program, for the first time ever, we've been having students ask us about whether or not farming is a viable career for them in the future. The folks at the restaurant, I was talking to them this morning and they were telling me when they come in and they bring the veggies, a lot of them now are saying, you know what, maybe I, maybe I want to be a farmer. And so we, we remind them that, you know, farming isn't exactly the easiest gig ever, but by that same token, in all reality, more, the more people who become very committed to increasing not only the availability, but the equitable availability of local food in any community, I support that. And I think that, that these kids that are in here working are seeing something for the first time. A lot of them previously did not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, and so they have a newfound appreciation for it. But also, I think they see it through a lens that a lot of other people can't see it through. They recognize that they can, that they can turn something that was once a dream into this really vibrant reality. I think that's empowering, and oh, I love that. Absolutely. Kevin, I know that in 2018 you were diagnosed with kidney cancer, and Atlanta was so concerned, and you were in so many people's prayers. You appear healthier than ever. Your spirit is fantastic. You look like you've been exercising a whole lot. Has recovering from cancer informed your outlook on success? I would say that, that going through all that is involved in fighting, recovering from, living with cancer, all of these things, um, completely changes the way that you view what's genuinely valuable in life and what is largely only valuable because societally we've decided that it is. And so for me specifically, I always early on in my career, I certainly measured success by how many restaurants we could open, how much money we could make doing them, how many people we could employ. And now I think I recognize that success is a lot more about the impact that you can have in the lives and successes of other people it's not so internally focused, I've recognized, that it actually has a lot more to do with what are you doing for everyone else. And so my mentality and the way that I run my company and the way that we have chosen to grow it has changed significantly. It's a lot more now about giving opportunity to the next person up, about recognizing, frankly, that we don't really need that much money anyhow, and that we would much rather take what we have earned in excess and apply it to things that will make a lasting impact. It has changed me as someone who now realizes that there are a lot of things that I can't control. I didn't choose to become sick, and in many respects, I didn't get to pick the outcome of that. I did everything that I could, but there was a big piece of that that was outside of my own control. And I think that lesson has been learned many times over again for me in business because what I do know is that I can provide opportunities to people, I can motivate them, I can put the resources in front of them, but then I have to step back and let people live their own lives. I can't project for them. But what's been amazing is that once you 
sort of step back and you allow these things to happen organically, we've probably never been more successful than we have following that. I certainly believe that from an internal perspective as far as the way that our employees feel about their lives, the quality of their life, the quality of the work they do, I know we've never been more successful. And now has come the point where I've been very blessed and provided with so very much that it's more than enough time now for me to start making a more lasting impact. And so things like this garden and the foundation that we began and future work that we're doing is really, I've been given enough and I've won enough, it's time for me to, to ensure that the next people are given those same opportunities. Evan Gillespie, here is to your continued good health, renewed health, and thank you so much for the beautiful way in which your good work impacts so many other lives. Well, I appreciate it. Everything I've ever done that has been successful has been the effort of a very large group of people, many of whom don't get nearly the credit that they deserve. So thank you very much, and I will share those accolades with, with everyone else who is making this successful every day. And as far as I'm concerned, you are the top <laughs> chef. Thank you. Restaurateur and chef Kevin Gillespie, owner of Gunsher in Atlanta. After a short break, We'll hear more about Jackson Park Farm from one of the students and Mrs. Valerie Jackson, wife of the late Mayor Maynard Jackson. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. In 2019, the One Love Learning Foundation created a community garden situated on the rooftop of Maynard Jackson High School. Students learn how to grow produce and tend the garden former First Lady of Atlanta and wife of the late mayor of Atlanta, Maynard Holbrook Jackson, is a supporter of the One Love Learning Foundation. She joined me in the garden to talk about the wonderful work One Love is doing with and for the students. I began by asking her about her initial interest in gardening. I've always liked to play in the dirt. And when I was a kid growing up, I had grandparents that had a farm. 
and I would go out into the farm with them to pick the string beans and the tomatoes and we'd carry a salt shaker with us because we'd just pull the tomatoes off the vine and salt oh. them and eat them right there and I've never tasted anything more delicious than that. So I've always been, you know, a nature lover, so to speak. And even though now I don't have a farm at home, every day I'm outside in the yard for at least an hour, usually early in the morning, you know, before the traffic can be heard and the leaf horns. Flowers. Yeah, exactly, and the leaf flowers, <laughs> right. But usually about 6, 7 a.m., I'm out there just kind of deadheading or I don't have a lot of vegetables per se, but I have a lot of flowers. And I might be deadheading flowers or maybe clipping a few of the mint leaves from my mm. herbal stash. But to me, it's my sacred time. It's, it's a very special time for me. It's quiet. I'm communing with God, with nature. And it really does set the mood for the day for me. If I don't go out in the yard before I start work, I, I, I feel kind of off-centered, you know. So I've always been a nature lover. That's why this garden is so important to me. Valerie, in the past, I know you practiced yoga and meditation. So often at this station, you were telling me, breath, <laughs> breathe, Lois. And, and I keep that with me. Is that beauty of yoga and meditation revealed here in the Jackson Park Farm. Absolutely. It's a vital part of the park. As a matter of fact, the garden itself is what they call a mandala design. It's a labyrinth. And in ancient times, they used to use labyrinths as tools for meditation. And it's composed of kind of like a spiraling circle path it's a meandering path that doesn't really have a purpose, but it serves a purpose because the labyrinth stands for wholesomeness. And it, it's used to bring serenity, comfort, and healing to the soul and the mind to those you know, who walk it. And so this spiritual aspect of the garden is really the, the child of Brenda Isaac who is the founder of One Love Learning Foundation. She and I have been friends for over 20 years. As a matter of fact, we met through Deepak Chopra, ah. hence the spiritual aspects of our lives. And it was because of that spiritual relationship that we had and because I recognized what she had been doing in South Africa with community and school gardens and in Jamaica, establishing school gardens there, teaching the young you know, students how to, to take pride in their own work and to see what creativity can do and, and where it leads to, which is self-esteem, among other things. And so the meditation part of this, and the students have been taught this, and they, they've learned how to walk the path. And as they work in the yard to basically kind of, you know, focus on mindfulness, pay attention to what they're doing, you know, and, and observing, you know, the results of it. So, yes, this, I'm just so proud and pleased and delighted with this garden because it incorporates so many aspects of my own life. And it's, uh, I'm hoping it's going to also actually 
be felt by the students and be picked up by the students, you know, and, and let them carry forth with that kind of mindfulness and purpose and wholesomeness. During the administrations of your late husband, our beloved Mayor Maynard Jackson, in addition to his own work, you focused a great deal on developing international ties. And here we see flags of South Africa and Jamaica. How does this garden bring together well, students from those countries? Well, in, in several ways. Not only are they sharing the same philosophy, so to speak, from Brenda's One Love Learning Foundation of soil, soul, and society. Playing in the dirt, working in the soil, which to me is always, you know, in touch with nature. The soul that's fed by doing that, but also because gardening is not just science, it's an art also. And Maynard always believed that public art was one of the most important things that we could do. And, and this is public art. This is public art. It feeds the soul. It gives us a reason to, to be excited and to look forward to beauty. And the third uh, leg of this philosophy is society. When we learn to treat each other with kindness, it's extended to others as well. And Brenda Isaac, as I mentioned, who was the founder of One Love Learning Center, established community schoolyard gardens, organic gardens in South Africa, which is what that flag uh, denotes, and also in Jamaica. And now here in the United States, at Maynard Jackson High School is the third part of that trilogy, so to speak. It was not only because we were very involved with the Olympics, which was worldwide, and I visited all those countries as a result of that, but it was also because we believe that young people are going to be the ones who exchange knowledge and love and information and eventually bring this world back to a stage where it needs to be, one of love and compassion. So I'm, as part of the Olympics, I was the co-chair of the Children's Ticket Olympic Fund, where we brought children from all over the state and the country for that matter, who could not afford to buy tickets to the Olympics. And one of the things that I felt strongly about was that here we have an Olympics in the backyard of all of these poor, young, and oftentimes minority students and, and, and families, and yet none of them could afford to go. So we made sure that 20,000 tickets were provided to these young children who were not able to, to do that. But the world is a circle and we're not, no man is an island. We're all a part of it. And one of the things about this labyrinth is that it talks about social redemption in a way and meaningfulness and a solemnness for love and compassion. And if that's not what the world needs today, I don't know when it's gonna ever need it. Can you tell us how Brenda Isaacs and the One Love Learning Foundation connected with Center Park? I believe that it was because of her reputation, really. I believe Liz, who's with the PR department at Central Park, was aware of 
Brenda's work in South Africa and in Jamaica with the school gardens. And she had such a strong success story there that I think that Center Park was ready to, to be a part of that in terms of coming back and revitalizing this rooftop organic garden that we have here, which you know fell into disrepair during the pandemic because we couldn't get up here. The students weren't allowed to come up and to tend the, the garden. And so, you know, we, we, we had to take a couple steps back because we couldn't work the garden. So when we got the funding from Center Park Credit Union Foundation, I was just elated. And I want to say right now, thank you, thank you, thank you to Center Park for that support because it has made all the difference in the world and has lifted my mood, my spirit. I'm so excited and happy to be back playing in the dirt, you know, <laughs> and I have them to thank for that. And also for the generosity of Kevin uh, Gillespie, oh, yes. who has been working with the students, taking them into his kitchen, showing them opportunities in food service and food preparation. And this is not just about playing in the dirt. The young kids are learning about entrepreneurship about growing vegetables and learning how to sell them or to donate them to worthy organizations. They're learning how to exchange ideas with each other and to get to know diverse groups of people because our last set of interns from the Maynard Jackson High School a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, we had black, we had white, we had a mixed race, we had an autistic young man who was one of my favorite students. And so they learned about each other they learned about their own ideas and their own capabilities. They exchanged ideas and they exchanged histories uh, that they experienced. And when we do that, it, it's, it's, a, it's a rope that, that connects all of them and becomes a blessing not just to the Maynard Jackson Ruth Garden, but to the community that the young people are coming from and because they take it back home and they teach their parents, believe it or not, mm -hmm. what they've learned here. I've had so many people say, Miss Jackson, Miss Jackson, do you have anything like this for grown-ups?" <laughs> true, true. And so it's, it's a blessing, not just for the students, but for the whole family and the community, which was another reason why I was happy about uh, Center Park, because they're very committed to community gardens and their access to fresh food and it's, it's a wonderful partner. Everything that you have touched upon seems just the ideal representation of Maynard Jackson's legacy. The, the philosophy of the One Love Learning Foundation and the Maynard Jackson Youth Foundation are so similar. It's just one reason why Brenda and I get along so well, because we share the same thoughts and feelings about young people. And Maynard was determined to, to develop among young people not only a sense of self-esteem, but an ability to be an entrepreneur. That's what they're doing in this garden. They're learning how to grow food and to sell the food. So they're becoming a part of the economic commerce in the city and teaching them you know, how important that is in a community and to be involved with that, whether it's through the NPU, the Neighborhood Planning Unit, or whether it's working up here in the garden. You learn how to use what you've got in the community to get what you need for that community. So Maynard Jackson's leadership lives on. 
and yours continues oh, with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a joy and a privilege. I am so honored. Valerie Jackson, wife of the late Mayor Maynard Jackson, and supporter of the One Love Learning Foundation. One of the students whom Ms. Jackson referred to is Maynard Jackson High School graduate Amir Smith. Amir works for the One Love Learning Foundation and tends the Garden Weekly. Here, Amir talked about how he first became involved with the Maynard Jackson Garden. Well, I was, just start, I was just starting my years of high school, and then I just heard about the garden program, and I thought it would be very interesting to start this, to be in this program, and I was right. I mean, my first day here was almost my last. I haven't done this work before, but now, over the years that I have been doing this work, I have really evaluated. I really enjoy doing, doing this. Helping out the garden has been such an inspiration for me. And I like being around my coworkers. I even consider them as my as good friends. Yeah. What is it about the garden that you find most appealing, that really excites you the most? <laughs> Reaping the fruits of my labor. I mean, <laughs> seeing every plant grow is so unique to me. I have always been interested in plant growth ever since I was a little kid. It's like so interesting for me to see something actually grow over time and then you could just harvest it. That is fantastic. Amir, you began as a student when you were in Maynard Jackson High School. Now you are employed by the One Love Learning Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's been a good ride. I mean, Every time I come here to the garden, it's just a whole challenge. You gotta have that determination to come out here every single day. And the work, it doesn't get easy, but, it, but with sheer perseverance, you can make this job a whole lot easier. Well, congratulations on doing such a great job. And I know that you are a personal favorite of some very important people around here. Yeah, the, the other thing I really like about this garden, we give to the community. Even if it's just a little, even if we cannot give them a lot, a lot of our vegetables, a lot of our produce, we try to give back to the community. We go to a whole lot of sites, we go to a senior center, and we go to a restaurant that loves our vegetables. That is so worthwhile and so important for many people in our community. Amir Smith, thank you again. Ashley, thank you for making time to, to interview me. Amir Smith, employee of the One Love Learning Foundation and caretaker of the Maynard Jackson Rooftop Garden. You can see the video we created while on the Rooftop Garden, along with more information about the foundation on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Additionally, our PBS station, ATL PBA, will air this special Sunday, December 12th at 8.30 a.m. In a moment, we'll hear from Irish tenor Emmett Cahill 
ahead of his upcoming performance at Symphony Hall. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Holiday sounds are in the air. And on November 29th at Symphony Hall, the World Outreach Fund presents Joy to the World, featuring the internationally renowned Irish singer Emmett Cahill as guest soloist on a program with Atlanta soprano Amy Little and the Georgia State University Singers. Emmett Cahill is on tour now, and he joins us via Zoom. Emmett, welcome to City Lights. Lois, thanks so much for having me, and great to speak with you. Many of our listeners know you as part of the ensemble Celtic Thunder, whose concerts air on our PBS station. In addition, you have a thriving solo career. Emmett, you have been described as the most exciting Irish tenor of your generation, the heir to the great John McCormick, if you will. I'm curious to know what you think it is about the Irish tenor style that's so appealing. How much of it is the music and how much is the voice itself? I guess a lot of it comes down to these songs, these stories that the Irish, the Irish were always known as storytellers. And needless to say, the Irish traveled the world over. Um, I mean, I've been around the States many times over the years touring and, and I bump into Irish people all the time. And I guess we tell our stories and we sing our songs and the, the themes of the music is it's very universal. It's very accessible to all cultures, to all people. You know, we sing of great triumphs and loss and love and tragedy and emigration in particular, I guess, is a theme that everybody, particularly here in the States, can resonate with. Um, your ancestors ultimately came from some far reaching country and, and went through a great journey to get to the United States and make their roots and and find a better life and I guess the Irish story is very much epitomized in the emigration story so over the years we have had some great classical tenors who have taken on these songs and and the style of the tenor just seems to I suppose bring out that story in a way that other styles don't and and in in many ways I guess I'm carrying on that mantle and, and bringing these songs of emigration, I guess, to a new generation of Americans, not only Irish Americans, but people who just really connect to that story because they think of their family. And it's a very familial kind of atmosphere at my concerts. You know, people want to feel part of it and feel connected to the music. And and thankfully, that I suppose the tenor voice seems to bring that out and make people feel connected to it, you know? I think you expressed that beautifully. And the idea of universal themes Mm -hmm. does make it far more inclusive than one might at first think. 
Let's take two of the best-loved examples of Irish music, and if you would please, hear your answers to what makes it great. First, Danny Boy, of course. What makes it great? I think Danny Boy is a song that is hugely relatable. I mean, the origins of the song are a conversation between a father and a son. And the son is about to leave home and go to war to fight for his country. And he speaks to his father in the first verse, trying, I suppose, to comfort him, you know, and telling him that he may not come back, but he will always be with him. the father explains to him that if he does come back he may very well have passed on so there is a great honesty in the conversation it has a beautiful melody of course but again it, there's it's something so relatable to so many people whether it's in that particular scenario which many families have gone through but also there's something that seems to connect people that it whether it's a parent to a child or a spouse or a, a family member. When I sing Danny Boy, I have seen people smile and I have seen people cry. And it's one of those rare moments that, you know, not every song does that. Normally you sing a song and it has one effect on people and you kind of expect it. Whereas Danny Boy, you, you never know how it is going to affect people because I think with Dan, Danny Boy and also the Irish songs, these, these songs, I think, serve as a conduit for people, for their, for their memories. They connect people to their loved ones, to moments in their life, to people maybe who have passed on. And the songs maybe bring them to that moment in their life or make them sense that that person is there with them. And, and I speak about this in my concerts, and it's a very powerful thing. And, and as I said, the music is simply the conduit, but... For the audience member, it's their own personal experience. And I think that's really what's special about it. And in particular, I see that manifest itself when I sing Danny Boy. It's always a very moving uh, moment in the concert. Oh, yes. And my all-time favourite Irish melody, which leaves me sobbing, but maybe also grateful, so I smile for the beauty it brings. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, it does both. Tura Lura Lura, my all-time favourite. What makes it so great? I think Tura Lura, it's funny, I, I sang it at a concert recently in uh, Pensacola, Florida. I was down at Pensacola Christian University, and... There were 6,000 people at the concert and they were all aged between 
19 and 23. And I had the entire auditorium singing along with Tour Lura, which was for me so kind of almost unexpected because I had heard my grandmother singing it to me when I was a child. I woke upon a Sunday morning, tired eyes to greet the day, a rucksack full of expectations up on dreary Langdon Way, a train awaiting on the platform, the diesel humming high. A one-way ticket stamp for freedom, time for just one last goodbye. I bring the song with me wherever I go because for that reason you just mentioned Lois it's a piece that just resonates with people here and I think the special thing about Tour Lura is that it's a song that is passed from one generation to the next and that's the quite unique thing about Irish music is that it's not just of its time it's there's a sense of passing it on to your own children because you know how it made you feel and you know this continues on through generations and that's very much the case in ireland and as from my time here in the states from touring i've seen that i've had people come up to me and say you know you sang tour allure tonight and you took me back to my mother singing it to me as a child and and there are very few songs i think actually do that for people and these were people you know late in their life they're talking about maybe 50 60 years ago and a song just took them there so when i was singing that with six thousand kids in their 20s it was quite a a unique experience but it was really special and they all they were absolutely loving it so you have good taste lois i tell you <laughs> the kids in pensacola would agree with you well, thank you. Who can resist an Irish lullaby? Absolutely. You know you have arrived when you are invited to open the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. Emmett, would you tell us about that experience? What was it like for you? Well, first off, I can tell you that it was absolutely freezing. <laughs> because <laughs> It was a few years ago, and I remember... I, we were out doing some promotion work. I was launching my album, um, my Ireland album, and we had done the Today Show that morning. And we were going up to the parade up on Fifth Avenue. It starts up just outside, just beside Central Park on the, on the east side of the park. And I remember all the streets were shut down and my mom and dad were with me. We were trying to get through to the NBC truck to get in and get prepped and get mic'd up. And for some reason, every time we tried to get towards the park, we were even turned around by police officers. And just to add a little bit of spice to this story, there was about two feet of snow in New York that day. <laughs> so we were running around trying to get through, calling the producer. To, anyway, eventually we made it with about five minutes to spare. And I just ran into the truck and did whatever I could to warm my body up because it was going on a, on national TV. And literally within a couple of minutes, I had a mic in my hand and I had to stand there and smile and pretend this was the <laughs> the greatest moment of my life. And it was it was it was a big moment. But I all I could think was, how am I ever going to feel warm again? So <laughs> it was but, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And to have my parents there was wonderful. And it, it all I got to sing at St. Patrick's Cathedral as well for the, for the Mass on St. Patrick's Day. And, and, you know, as an Irish man, 
keeping giving that honor was was really special. I know about the Irish connection not only to New York but to America and and how St Patrick's Day is a real highlight of the calendar year. So, yeah, it was it was a uh, let's just say it was ex- an experience I won't forget. I'm sure, nor will your parents. <laughs> no, no, they definitely won't. Running in the snow after me around <laughs> New York. <laughs> well, here in Atlanta, the theme of the program on which you'll sing is Joy to the World. Which songs do you especially look forward to performing on the Christmas concert? Well, for Joy to the World, what we want to do is, I suppose, bring out some of those Irish songs that I've mentioned, these songs that no matter what time of year it is, no matter what the audience is, they resonate. So needless to say, I won't be let out of the symphony hall intact if I don't sing Danny Boy, if I don't sing Tura Laura. Um, there's a song called Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears, which tells the immigration story so beautifully. On the first day of January, 1892, they opened Ellis Island and they let the people through. And first to cross the threshold of that Isle of Hope and Tears was Moore from Ireland who was all of 15 years. Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears, Isle of Freedom, Isle of Fears. Uh, we have a wonderful quartet from the Atlanta Symphony with us. We have uh, the Georgia State University Choir will be joining us. And of course, we have Amy Little. So the first half of the concert will be very much Irish themed and songs of inspiration, which in many ways sum up the work that World Outreach Fund do, the impact that they have on people's lives. And then the second half, we are going full Christmas where all the Christmas hymns that people know we're going to have sing-along songs and of course we'll have Silent Night or Holy Night, Joy to the World. So we're definitely going to be getting in, in the festive mood. It's the start of the, the holiday season and I think people are people are ready to, after the year that we've all had, people are ready to relax and celebrate and be together again. So it's going to be a lovely night. Emmett Cahill, this has been a lovely experience talking with you. Thank you so very much. Well, thank you so much for having me, Lois, and and I look forward to seeing everybody in Atlanta in a few weeks. Um, We're ready to uh, kick off the holiday season in style, and happy holidays to everybody out there. Joy to the World, a Christmas benefit concert featuring Irish tenor Emmett Cahill will be performed Monday, November 29th at Atlanta Symphony Hall. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Looking for a cozy home away from home? Or a gorgeous mansion to be your home away from home? 
Well, Callenwold Fine Arts Center on Briarcliff Road is presenting a 16-day event called Winter House. Families can enjoy a multitude of arts activities. Callenwold instructors will teach workshops such as floral arranging, glass etching, calligraphy, and pottery. And while you're learning how to make a gingerbread house or throwing clay on a wheel, Atlanta jazz musicians will perform at the indoor courtyard. There will also be local food vendors. And Jolly St. Nick will make an appearance for family photos November 26th through the 28th. Admission to the mansion, fire pit, and artist market are all free. Workshops and special performances will be ticketed. The Winter House opens this Friday, November 26th. More information about their offerings and programming can be found on their website, callenwalt.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Thursday and Friday, we'll have holiday specials for you in anticipation of Thanksgiving and the weekend. Monday at 11 a.m., Jamil Jude, the artistic director of Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company, stops by to talk about the upcoming season and their new production of a play about Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm Lois Reitzes wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. We're thankful that you listen to W-A-B-E at Light. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.